Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. Something that I thought you guys might really appreciate. I sat down last week to take a look at the calendar and my sermon calendar as well to try to figure out um, just how much, how many more sermons we have. Can I finish First Corinthians by summer? And I sat down and figured out that I have 13 more sermons left in 1 Corinthians. And I have 13 more opportunities to preach, Lord willing, before the end of May. So how about that? God lined that out perfectly. Um, as long as I don't die. But, hey, if I die, that's on y'all. I'm good. Don't even think about it. Okay, I'll try not to think about it. I think we're verging into, like, suicide cult territory right now, Miss Jerry. I think we should be really cautious how we frame these things. Take us with you when you die. No, they drank Flavor-Aid, and I will never drink Flavor-Aid. Never. Never doing it. Kool-Aid for life. <clears throat> A couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at the necessity of self-control for Christians. We talked about the importance of striving to win spiritually and refusing to allow ourselves to be complacent in our pursuit of Christ, that we, we have to consistently be intentional with the way that we are going about the Christian life. We can't box as one beating the air or run around aimlessly. Um, and, and we talked about the frightening reality that we can be shown to be outside of Christ by the way that we do not have self-control in our spiritual lives. Not that we can be removed from salvation, from redemption by Christ, but we can be shown that we never had it in the first place if we are not changed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that began to kind of push us into Paul's recognition of the Gentile Christians' participation in the kingdom of God and the people of God, right? We talked about how Israel, it, the, the, the church, is kind of the fullness, the, com the completion of God's people of the nation of Israel, right? That not all who are descended from Israel from a genealogical perspective are God's people, but those who have been circumcised in, in their heart, and so we talked about how Paul was talking, addressing the Gentile Corinthian believers as brothers and referencing our Jewish fathers, our collective Jewish fathers. And, and how just because we might be a part of spiritual things, even miraculous things, that sometimes people still reject God in favor of their own self-indulgence because they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Right? We talked about how the Israelites in the, de in the wilderness, they had just come out of Egypt, just passed through the, the sea, just seen God destroy the Egyptian army right behind them. And they go to the mountain and Moses is on the mountain for a little while. And they're like, hey, Aaron, we need a God to worship. And they give him gold and Aaron makes them a calf out of their gold 
the gold that God miraculously gave them from the Egyptians. They just went to their neighbors and said, hey, can I have some stuff? And they were like, sure, here's all our jewelry. Take it. They then made a false god from that. And we talked about how it was really just an excuse for them to have just this wild rampaging party when Moses was coming down from the mountain. It said that it sounded like there was war in the camp. That was what was going on down there. And Aaron gave the most teenager response to any question I've ever seen in the Bible. When Moses calls him out on making this idol, he says, well, the people, they made me throw the gold in the fire and then out popped this calf. Wow. I've heard some doozies as, as a youth guy, but that's a pretty big one, right? And so, and finally, we, we talked about the way of escape, right? We looked at that very well-known verse about how God will not tempt us beyond what we can bear, that he will provide for us, that everything is common to man. He will provide for us a way of escape. But we discussed what that really means. We discussed how Moses was referencing in Numbers 21, how the people of Israel were rejecting God and God sent fire snakes. The Bible calls them fire flaming snakes after them in the wilderness and they were being bitten and they were dying. And they said, we, we, need, we need rescue. And so rather than take the snakes away, God had Moses make a snake and put it on a pole and hold it up so that every time someone was bitten, they look to the snake. And we talked about how that was a type of Christ. It was a reference to Jesus. And that is our way of escape, that we still live in a fallen world where we are tempted to sin. We are tempted by our flesh and we look to Christ, and he is our way of escape. And so Paul tonight takes all of the things that we've been looking at since chapter 8 that he has kind of been working his way through, and he gets all of that to bring us to his primary point right here in this passage. So let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 14. We're going to read 14 through 22. And this is what it says. You can read along in your Bible. It'll also be on the screen. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what people, what, what, excuse me, what pagans sacrifice, they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul begins this passage with the word, therefore, therefore. So that means that the arguments he has been making are building to this point. He has been structuring his language and his words so that he can come to this spot. He wants, his, he wants this phrase, this command to have a foundation to stand on. 
So he says, therefore, my beloved. That's also important. He's speaking to the Corinthians, not as enemies, not as frustrations, not as annoyances. He's speaking to them as people that he loves. He's speaking to them as his spiritual children. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. The word flee carries a very significant connotation. In the book of Genesis, you may be familiar with the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife decided that Joseph was a very attractive guy and she wanted Joseph to sleep with her. And she would ask him constantly, please sleep with me, please sleep with me. And he, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. And then one day it says that Joseph and Potiphar's wife were alone in the house and she essentially ran up and grabbed him. And Joseph, he didn't stand there and say, oh, please don't touch me, ma'am. Oh, I don't want to do this. It says that he ran away. He fled. He fled so fast that he left his clothes behind. She had grabbed his clothes and he took off and ran straight out of his britches and just kept going. And she used his clothes as evidence that he attacked her and got him thrown in prison. Joseph didn't stay and try to explain himself. He didn't stay and try to justify his own actions. What did he do? He ran away. When the Bible says here, flee from idolatry, it carries that same connotation. Run away. Run straight out of your britches if you have to. Run away. Flee from idolatry. And so Paul goes on and he says, in verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. So Paul here is appealing to common sense. Remember the Corinthians think very highly of themselves and of their wisdom, of their intelligence. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen, listen, I, you guys are sensible people. I'm a sensible guy. Let's talk about this rationally. I'm, I'm going to speak to you like sensible people. And you just, you judge for yourself what I have to say. You judge for yourself. So flee from idolatry. Now, why do you, th why is Paul saying that here? Why is Paul coming back to this idea of idolatry? Well, so if you remember back in chapter eight, the issue there was food that had been sacrificed to idols. And there was a disagreement within the church about whether or not Christians could eat food sacrificed to idols. Under the law, that was a big time no-no. It was unclean. You didn't do it. But Paul's argument was, and we, this is here in 1 Corinthians, it's also elsewhere in the New Testament, that that aspect of the law, and we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, that aspect of the law is no longer something we have to be concerned with. Okay? We don't have to be worried about that. And also, Paul made the point, idols have no real existence. They're not a thing. It's not like these are mini gods and our God is the mega God. They're not gods at all. And so Paul says, you're, you're not worshiping a false God because there are no false gods. That's not a thing. They don't, they're not real. So eat it. 
But remember what he said. He said, however, don't cause your weaker brother to stumble. And Paul went so far as to say, I would never eat meat again. Because there were those who were convinced it was a sin and their conscience was troubled by it. And Paul was telling them that if you eat it and these people whose conscience is troubled, they might think, well, oh, oh, well, now I can eat it. And then they go eat it and you've now caused them to sin by running around proclaiming your own liberty. And our liberty takes a back seat when it comes to the good of the whole body. Christianity is a collective thing. Okay? Now, the issue is, beyond just eating the meat, beyond just possibly buying it and taking it home and having cheap roast or whatever it was, some Christians were actually going to these pagan temples and eating at the feast to these pagan idols. They were going to these temples to buy this meat rather than buying it from the market, recognizing this might be meat sacrificed to idols. It might not. It's not a big deal. I can eat it. They were going straight to the source. And they were going so far as to actually go to the festivals because they were saying, well, they're not real. These aren't real gods. So what's the big deal? So to, to compare, to compare, it would be like if the Sikhs were having a Sunday lunch and we all decided on Sunday after church we were going to go over to the Sikh temple and eat Sunday lunch with them. We should not do that. Okay? Just, just going on record. We should not do that. This is exceedingly foolish for the Corinthians to do. It's very foolish. And it's also a terrible outgrowth of their own overestimation their own misunderstanding of strength and wisdom. The Corinthians were convinced that they were strong and they were wise, and Paul has already deconstructed those ideas earlier in 1 Corinthians. And this is the logical end of it. And listen, we see this happening today. We see people saying, well, what's the harm? if we allow homosexual members into the church? What's the harm if we, only, if we hire a, a woman pastor? What's the harm if we just stray further and further and further away from the Word of God? What's the harm? That's the attitude that the Corinthians had here. What's the harm? Now, we might think that idolatry is a narrow practice that is not as big of a concern for us. Back then, you went into these Gentile, these pagan cities, you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a, pa a pagan temple to a false god. Okay? Well, we don't have that anymore. Right? There's not a temple to Artemis on Taft Highway. That's, that's not a thing. But... Idolatry is bigger than just simply not following a different religion. It's, it's bigger than that. We can't just simply say, well, if I'm a Christian and not a Muslim, then I'm not falling into idolatry. That's not how this works. Because idolatry is a common issue within our hearts that we must constantly fight against. Over in 1 John chapter 2, 
verses 15 and 16. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. John says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And you might hear that and go, well, that doesn't sound like idolatry. You know how John closes 1 John? The last verse in 1 John says this. The last words. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's how he closes the book. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So what I want us to practically understand is that an idol is anything that you love above Christ. Anything that you love above Christ is an idol. And I want to be really careful how I say this next part. But I think this is really important. Because John goes so far as to say, don't love the world or the things in the world. Other translations might say the things of the world. Because John goes so far as to say that, I'm kind of comfortable saying that idolatry also would be think, loving, the thing, loving things more than the things of Christ as well. All right, thank you, Ms. Jerry. I got one yes vote. Okay, so, so what I mean by that is to say, if you place something above the scriptures as more important, as more significant, as more meaningful, that's idolatry. If you place something above the church as more deserving of your time or your devotion or your energy, that's idolatry. I'm not saying that the church is something to be worshiped, but the church is the bride of Christ. And so if we love Christ, we should, by extension, love his bride and care for her. If you love me, you better be nice to my wife. Because if you're not, first of all, why would you love me and not her? That makes zero sense. <laughs> Just on a practical level, okay? But you can't really love me and not love my wife. That's, that's not, once, once two people are married, they're a package deal. I can't love one of you and, and not love the other. But so idolatry is anything that we place above Christ specifically, and then by extension, the things of Christ. And that would also encompass anything that pulls your attentions or your affections away from Christ. Anything that pulls your attentions or your affections away from being focused on Jesus Christ, that is an idol. And you should flee. You should run away from those things. Not see how close you can get not try to pragmatically live a balanced lifestyle. One of the common questions that you get as a pastor, and people talk about it like, oh, teenagers ask this question. Adults ask this question too. They just ask it in a different way. How far can I go before it's a sin? How much cheating can I do on my taxes before God gets mad about it? 
How far over the speed limit can I drive before it's a sin? How many dirty words can I say when I get road rage before it's a sin? We ask, we think of it from a, how close can I get to the fire before I get burned? When in reality, what we should be saying is, I'm going to stay as far away from the fire as I can because I want to get close to to God. I want to be close to holiness. I want to pursue holiness, not, I I don't want to love the world, but I kind of want to have my toe in that pool. You know, I want to kind of just dip in there a little bit, just a little bit, right? We have to be really mindful of these things because that is idolatry. And so if you want to hold on to your money because it's yours and you earned it, that's fine, but that's idolatry. If you want to hold on to your time because it's all you got left, that's fine, but that's idolatry. I know plenty of people that retire from their job and then they retire from ministry too. Oh no, I did my time. I served in the nursery and then I retired and I'm done. I'm here to just sit and soak till I die. How depressing and how idolatrous. Anything that you place above Christ, including yourself, including your health, it's idolatry. Christ calls us to come and die any man would come after me he must deny himself take up his cross and come follow me deny yourself be willing to die and so Paul gives a couple of examples here of he he wants to again you remember he's speaking as to sensible people so he wants to give some examples of what he's trying to reference here. So the first example he gives is the Lord's Supper. And I want to go ahead and preface this by saying later in 1 Corinthians, we're going to have a sermon entirely on the Lord's Supper. We're not going to take the Lord's Supper because it'll be on a Sunday night. But we will talk extensively about the Lord's Supper. So I'm not going to get too deep into that topic tonight. Okay? But Paul says... That when we take the cup, take the bread, we are directly participating in and benefiting from the body and the blood of Christ. The Lord's Supper is the practical way for Christians to essentially get more of Jesus. It's the practical, physical way that we get more of Jesus. Now, please understand Jesus is not physically present in the elements. Especially not the Baptist ones where you get the little styrofoam disc. Okay? Jesus is not physically present in the elements. There are, there are branches of what calls themselves Christianity, specifically Roman Catholicism, that believes that there is a miracle that takes place when the priest blesses the elements, that it physically becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a doctrine called transubstantiation. Okay? And it's not true. It's wrong. Jesus is not physically present in the elements of the Lord's Supper. It is a remembrance. It is a remembrance. It is an important remembrance. It is not just a, oh, Jesus died, I'm done. It is an important thing to remember, to focus on. Paul uses the word here, the Greek word koinonia, 
You may have heard that word before. That's one of the Greek words that most Christians do know. They have heard it before. And the word means fellowship. But it's not just fellowship. Like Baptists, we use fellowship to mean we all made some casseroles and got together to eat. That's how Baptists tend to use the word fellowship. But the idea of fellowship in the Bible, especially when you're talking about koinonia, is there is a close association. There is a sharing. And it's not just sharing food. All right? It's sharing your life. That's what it means to have fellowship. When we talk about fellowship among the people of God, we are sharing our lives together. And so the idea here, the fellowship that we have with Christ in the Lord's Supper is that it, is, it, it carries the idea of drawing us further into our understanding of and relationship with Christ when we partake of it. We are sharing in his sufferings, remembering what he suffered and recognizing the pain that our sin brought to him while also facing persecution and suffering for his sake in our own lives. And listen, we live in a country where currently we don't really have a fear of physical persecution for our faith in Christ. It always makes me cringe a little when people are like, I'm being persecuted. I'm like, how are you being persecuted? Well, the barista at Starbucks said, happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. I'm being persecuted. And I'm like, you realize they're chopping people's heads off on the other side of the world, right? That's persecution. You're whining about something that doesn't even matter. Next time this, the barista gives you a cup at Starbucks at Christmas time and they say, they say happy holidays, just say Merry Christmas and move on with your day. It ain't no big deal. You ain't being persecuted. But we do face persecution. We do face suffering. Some of you have shared about health issues that you're facing right now. That's suffering. Do you know why those health issues exist? Because sin exists. That is suffering that Christ came to free creation from. He suffered to set us free from that. And one way or another, Brother Frank, you're going to be free. One way or another. Either you're going to go to glory or Jesus is going to come back and you're going to be free of that suffering forever, praise God. And all of us will. But when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder, a remembrance that Christ, who did not deserve suffering, suffered freely for us. And by extension, we are also uniting further with one another by participating in those things together. So the Lord's Supper unites us more fully with Christ and more fully with each other. So that's the first example that Paul makes. The second example Paul makes is the temple sacrifice. So again, he uses a reference to Judaism, to the law. He talks about the temple sacrifice. And so he says, he says, consider the people of Israel are not those, this is verse 18, are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So here's what would happen. The priest would make the sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. So they would take these animals, these 
high dollar animals, all right? So remember, in the pagan temples, we're talking about cheap meat. They're sacrificing like the three-legged goats and stuff like that. And it's real cheap because it's all the stuff nobody wanted. But God required the best, spotless, you know, firstborn. He wanted the best. And so they get the best and then they kill it. They offer it to God as a sacrifice. And the priests are working furiously within the temple, sprinkling blood here and ashes there and doing all these things and saying these prayers and doing all of these things on behalf of the people of God. And what was their benefit? Was that after it was done, they got to eat the sacrifice. That was their benefit. They were blessed doubly by the sacrifices in the temple. They were blessed because God saw their sacrifice and received it and granted them forgiveness. And they were also blessed because they got to eat of the sacrifice as well. Listen to 1 Peter 2.9, speaking to believers. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, so connecting these two examples together, the, 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 the altar in the temple and the table of the Lord's Supper, we share the benefits of the Lord's table in the same way that the priests at the altar had them because we are priests within the new covenant. Do you see that? We have the benefit of the sacrifice just like the priests did. And our reminder of that is that we eat the bread and we drink the cup. It's not a physical thing that we get physically, we consume Jesus, but it's a reminder that we benefit of the sacrifice just like the priest did because God is good. And so those are Paul's two examples that he wants them to understand that we participate with Christ and with each other, just as the priest participated with God and with each other. And then he circles back to food sacrificed to idols. So he says in verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. So again, he reiterates, he is not changing his position on the existence of other gods, and he's not changing his position on food sacrificed to idols because they're still not real gods. But what does Paul say? I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So other gods aren't real, but there are demonic forces that are at work drawing people away from God, leading them astray, and that when these people offer up these sacrifices to these pagan gods, they are really worshiping demons. And Paul wants them to understand this because it's deeper than just, well, uh, there are no other gods. They're not real, so it's fine. But when you go into the temple and when you participate in that, you are participating in worshiping demons. That's what's happening. When you participate in idolatry, you are really fellowshipping, koinonia, with demons. 
And Paul says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You cannot partake of Christ and idolatry. You cannot pursue Jesus and sin. You cannot do it. We must be changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We must be changed. We cannot simply conduct ourselves however we wish in the name of freedom or liberty or our rights, but instead we must remember that we are people who are in koinonia with Jesus Christ, sharing in his benefits. We are fellowshipping with Jesus. Remember how we talked about standing against temptation? Remember how we talked about that? We are not able to stand against temptation apart from the work of God. We are not stronger than him. We are not stronger than God. We cannot stand in the face of relentless temptation and flirt more and more with sin, more and more with idolatry, and still remain pure. We can't do it. So what does that mean for us on a practical level? It means that our lives must be shaped by the scriptures. They have to be. You can't decide, well, I like this part and I don't like that part. You can't say, well, I really like the whole God is love thing. I'm not a huge fan of the lay down your life thing. So I'm just going to focus on the God is love part. You don't get to do that. You must shape your life around the scriptures or you're not in Christ. Now, please understand, I'm not saying if you sin, you're not a Christian. You're going to sin. But there's a difference between I have sinned and I am pursuing sin and I have no guilt, I have no need for repentance, I have no desire for change. There are two very different things there. And I know far too many Christians who operate from a perspective of, well, I'm forgiven, so it doesn't really matter. And it does matter. It does matter. Because that's idolatry. And you're worshiping demons. Knock it off. Flee from idolatry. And Paul finishes in verse 22, he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, jealousy is one of those words that when it's ascribed to God, people get a little bit antsy. Because when we talk about someone being jealous or being filled with jealousy, we're talking about a sinfulness, right? We're talking about envy. We are talking about a jealousy or an envy that says, I want what they have. That is mine. Give it to me. It is a selfish thing. God's jealousy is a holy protection of truth. Because here's the reality. Why is jealousy so bad? 
because we're not entitled to the things that we think we are. Envy is wrong because it's not ours. None of it's ours. It all belongs to God. So God, therefore, can be as jealous as he wants to because it is his. He is deserving of it. He is deserving of all of our affection, all of our attention, all of our devotion. He is deserving of it. Avalyn. He is deserving of it. And when we don't give it to him, we are provoking the Lord to jealousy. And so when Paul says, are you stronger than he or are we stronger than God? He's saying, can you really withstand the jealousy of God? Because here's the truth, brothers and sisters. I, I don't want to frighten you. I don't, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but I'm going to tell you the reality here, okay? If you are in Christ, God does not punish your sin, so to speak, okay? However, the Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And so if you are in Christ and you are in sin, God will break you. He will break you. One way or another, he will break you. And honestly, you should pray for that. Because if he doesn't, it means you're not in Christ. And you are destined for his eternal wrath. And I would much rather be broken than face that. And so if you provoke the Lord's jealousy, you're not stronger than him. He will break you. If you are in Christ and you are in sin, God will break you. He will convict you. And it might be a light conviction. It might be just a twinge in your heart that just makes you go, oh man, you know, I really shouldn't have talked to my coworker that way. I need to go apologize. And it might be a, you have defrauded the government and federal agents are knocking at your door to bring you to, you know, the federal pen. You can go be buddies with Adrian at work. <laughs> that might be how God breaks you. I don't know. I don't know. But I know he will. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. We would be terrible parents if we allowed our children to run rampant without any kind of check on their behavior or attitude. Most of you in this room have raised children. And you didn't let that happen. You didn't let your kids run around tearing stuff up, doing whatever they wanted. Why would God do that to us? God loves us infinitely more than you love your children. He loves us infinitely more than we love our children. As much as I love my, my kids, God loves them more. God loves me more. So flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Run away. Don't play with it. Don't tempt it. Don't provoke the Lord to jealousy. Flee. Flee. Because Christ is worthy of that. Christ is worthy of us laying down our lives, devoting ourselves to him, 
and setting all of that aside. Give up your rights. Never eat meat again. Move to Canada. Have a communist president, whatever it is. Trust Christ. Trust Christ. Don't bow to idols. Don't pursue fellowship with demons. Pursue fellowship with Christ. Pursue fellowship with his church. He'll take care of the rest. Let's pray. Father, we are eternally grateful for your goodness to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to look to Christ rather than give in to temptation. Help us, Lord, to flee from idolatry. Draw us into fellowship with Christ and with each other that we might all walk together toward glory. Grant to us the endurance, the perseverance to follow Christ forever. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.